Wow, this has just been an incredible time of worship. I, I, I really, you know, the one thing I've noticed since uh, Eric has arrived, just the level of congregational engagement and singing has just gone through the roof. And I really love hearing the church worship together. We're in a new series on prayer. I started last week. If you weren't here last week, you can always go online. Uh, we have our own uh, YouTube channel called Real Spring Creek Church. You can watch any message from the past there. You can also go and be a friend of Spring Creek on Facebook. You can watch the actual service you were in. And the bookstore has CDs and DVDs of the prior week's message. We would love for you to engage with us for the whole series, so please go pick that up. Today I want to talk to you about praying in the kingdom, and in particular we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. I was reading a cute story the other day about uh, a family, a Texas family. It was a typical sweltering Texas day in August, and the Smith family had company over, and it just seemed like nothing was going right. And finally, they get everybody together around the dinner table, and mom looks at her eight-year-old daughter and says, honey, will you say grace? And she said, mom, I don't know how to pray. And mom said, well, just pray the last prayer you heard mommy pray. So she bows her head, and she prays, oh, Lord, why did I invite all these stupid people on such a hot day? You know, if you, if you want to learn how to pray, copying other people may not be the best deal. What I've discovered is this. You know, when I read scripture, I see the disciples listening to Jesus pray and understanding that the way he prays is so categorically different from the way anybody ever prayed before him. It is both authoritative, it's powerful, and it is intimate. It is very personal. And so they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I think it's fascinating that, and it kind of floors me, that in the entire Bible, we only have one instance when the disciples specifically asked Jesus to teach them something. Now, they just heard the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And nobody said, Lord, teach us to preach. They had seen Jesus do things that they'd never seen anybody else do. And they didn't say, Lord, teach us to do miracles. But when they heard Jesus pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he did. And his teaching has become one of the most recognized but least understood passages in all the Bible. It's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, without a doubt. Since the day Jesus taught it, there's probably not been a day gone by that people have not been saying and praying these words to God somewhere on this planet. Today, we're going to take a closer look at this prayer, and I think you're going to be amazed at the depth that we're going to find there. In addition, you should know that there are very few things that really truly unite all Christians of all persuasions, but the Lord's Prayer is one of them because it transcends language and ritual and culture and race. I have been all over this planet. I have been in all kinds of churches. I've heard worship in all kinds of languages, but you know what? The Lord's Prayer is said in them all. In every single one, in all kinds of churches, it really doesn't matter the name over the door. It's one of the few things that unites us. In fact, you may not know this, but the Lord's Prayer is considered one of the three foundational documents of the Christian faith. Did you know it? There's two others. The other is the Apostle Creed the, and then the Ten Commandments. Every essential truth that you need to know is somehow contained in those three documents. The Apostle Creed tells us what we believe. The Ten Commandments tell us how we're to behave. The Lord's Prayer teaches us how we're to pray. So it's belief, prayer, and action. It's all right there. 
Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation, said this about the Lord's Prayer. He said, I regard it as the best of prayers, superior even to the Psalter or to the book of Psalms, which I'm very fond of. So last week we talked about praying the Psalms. I love to pray the Psalms. It's the best and the first book of prayer in the Bible. It exposes us to the full geography of the heart that lets us know that everything is welcome in our conversation with God. That we don't have to squelch. We don't have to pretend that we're not afraid or, or, or that, that we're confused or disappointed. That all of that is welcome in the presence of God. Because God knows us as we are, sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and expects us to come to him as we are. But Luther said, and I agree, that the Lord's Prayer is the greatest prayer ever prayed, even greater than the Psalms, because it says so much in so few words. But he also said this about the Lord's Prayer. It's the greatest martyr, for everyone tortures and abuses it. Now, what he meant by that is a lot of people know this prayer, know it by heart, can say it by rote, and often do so without engaging their heart and their mind. And that's the kind of worship that God does not want. We want God to flourish in our life. In other words, we know it all too well. We understand it far too little. And I hope to remedy that today. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's Prayer as a kingdom manifesto. Now, maybe you've never thought about it in this way before, but the Lord's Prayer is more than just a model prayer. It's a declaration. It's a manifesto because it proclaims that God's kingdom is breaking into the present reality. In the Greek, it's only 57 words long, but those 57 words contain a kind of spiritual dynamite that shatters earthly kingdoms. It's, all, it's also really worth noting right up front that all the pronouns in this psalm are plural. That means it's meant to be prayed together. It's meant to be prayed for us all. This prayer is the complete opposite of individualism. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about all of us. So in light of that, would you say together with me the Lord's Prayer? I'm going to do this out of the King James Version because it's the dominant form that's most readily memorized. But let's say it together. It'll be on the screens if you're not familiar. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. It really is a radical prayer. You know, the word radical means to be changed from the root up. And that's what this prayer is expressing. It's expressing this desire that what is not right in this world be uprooted and for the kingdom of God to come in its place and to flourish. You know, every week, millions of people around the globe utter these words without a single recognition or understanding of what it means to pray thy kingdom come so I want to begin with a simple question what is the kingdom of God now the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God are two terms used in Matthew Mark Luke and John that are used interchangeably referring to the same thing the phrase the kingdom of God occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books the the phrase kingdom of heaven only occurs in the gospel of Matthew and it occurs 32 times So Jesus' very first words, if you read Matthew and Mark from the beginning, declared that the kingdom of God was at hand. 
After that, he laces his parable and his teaching with over a hundred references to the kingdom of God. Simply put, you cannot hear Jesus without him talking about the kingdom. In fact, I'll go you one further. We often ask people, what is the gospel? But if you ask Jesus the question, what is the gospel? He's got one answer for you. And that one answer is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news is the kingdom. Jesus never just uses the word gospel alone. It's always the gospel of the kingdom. Listen to him explain why he came. He said, I must proclaim the good news or the gospel of the kingdom to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Gordon Fee is one of my favorite theologians. He's got an outstanding commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. But listen to what he said about Jesus in this kingdom gospel. You cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Wow. So in everyday English, a kingdom is a place where a king reigns. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the emphasis is not on a place, but it's on the person. It's about the reign of God himself. The Greek phrase is basileia to theao. And what it means, basileia, is the kingdom or the reign or the rule or the authority of God. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come near, he doesn't mean that a place is approaching. He's saying the reign of God is beginning to break out. It's beginning to have sway. So listen to this verse. This is in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now some people, when they read this verse and they see that it says the kingdom has come near, they think that that means the same thing as it's not here yet. But in the Greek, that's not the sense. Coming near means the kingdom has already begun to break out in some significant way. It would be like me telling you the tornado is coming near. That means get to your shelter right away, okay? So when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, he's saying it's beginning to happen. It's happening right now. Here's something else Jesus said about the kingdom. But if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now understand what he's saying. The exorcisms that Jesus performed are not just demonstrations of his power over the devil and not just demonstrations of his compassion for people who were oppressed. When he says that this, this is evidence of the kingdom, he's saying that casting out the demons is evidence that the kingdom of God is already present because God's authority has put the demonic, has put the enemy in full retreat. That's the kingdom. It's taking back the territory that the enemy has dominated. This is also true about the healings in the Gospels. Healing is never an end in itself. It's a demonstration of the kingdom. It's a demonstration of the reign of God and the authority of God over everything that happens in this world. When Jesus multiplies food, walks on water, when he calms the storm, these mighty acts are all demonstrations of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is not a place you go when you die. It's not about the sweet by and by. It's about the nasty here and now. It's about God coming here and doing his will. The kingdom is a vision of a transformed world. Which leads to another really important question. What does it mean to pray for the kingdom to come? This is the part of the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer that I'm referring to. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now it's interesting, Jesus doesn't pray, your kingdom come among your disciples like it is in heaven, right? And he doesn't pray, may your kingdom come in Israel like it is in heaven. He says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the day that heaven invades earth. Now I've explained this to you before, but it's worth mentioning again. Hebrew people, Jewish people loved parallelisms. And by parallelisms, it's a type of poetry when people would write, you find this in the Psalms and the book of Proverbs, you find it throughout the prophets. Jesus uses it a lot too. What happens is the second line in the poetry somehow amplifies, somehow explains, or defines the first line. So Jesus uses that in the Lord's Prayer. When he prays, may your kingdom come, and then he follows that, may your will be done. What he's saying is the kingdom of God is where the will of God is taking place. The society on earth where God's will is done the same as it is in heaven. So to pray for the kingdom to come is to say, God, I want what you want to happen here in my circumstance. Now let me underscore something really important. Earth is not a place where the will of God happens all the time. Because there's an evil one. And he dominates this world. And because of that, God and his purposes are always at cross purposes with the enemy. It's what Peter was referring to when he said that Jesus' healings were about those who were oppressed by the devil. The Apostle John said the same thing. He said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You see, there is a real battle, a war that's going on between the kingdom of God and the empires of this world. It's been going on for a long time. Some Christians, they read this language of warfare in the Bible and totally misinterpret it. They engage in culture wars using the same tactics as the world. Friends, we don't fight our battles the same way the world does, which is why the kingdom of God is not represented by a throne made of swords. It's represented by a seed. It's known by the banquet it throws, not for the rich and the powerful, but for the poor and the hungry. It's known because what we do, this is the upside-down kingdom, where the last are first and the first are last. When you start treating human beings like they're the enemy, You've already let your worldview be defined by this world and not by God. The Bible says that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities, against the rulers of darkness. So our war is waged on our knees with the battle and the truth of God. So when you look at somebody as the enemy, you're mistaken. They're victims of the enemy. They're not the enemy. No human being you've ever met is your enemy. The kingdom of God is the alternative to the empires of this world. Look in scripture. It was Rome. It was Egypt. Their predecessors were Persia, Babylon, and Assyria. These empires were defined by great wealth, economic disparity, domination, military power, and violence. Biblical scholar Walter Wink calls the systems of this world, the empires of this world, the domination system. And he says the kingdom of God is the domination-free society. That we are not like the world. So the kingdoms of this world oppress. People like you and me, we don't have any real voice in that places of power because it only respects the voices of power and money. We are no longer going to be that way because we live and embody the alternative, the kingdom of God. No longer will some people live in luxury while other people starve. No longer will some people have the penthouse where others in shanty towns. No longer will some people work like slaves while others just take all their profits. In God's kingdom, justice, mercy, and compassion rule the day. Which is, by the way, why I never align myself with any political party. Because my president, 
my president has already ascended to his throne, and his name is Jesus Christ. His political platform is the Sermon on the Mount. And that is the sole arbiter of truth. I don't care if you're on the right, the left, or somewhere in between. It's the truth of God to which I hold all empires accountable to. And my king, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the true Lord of the universe. So every time you and I express a desire for this world to be a better place, to be more like what God intended it to be, we're expressing our longing for the kingdom of God. When you sponsor a child, I have three kids on the other side of the planet. When I sponsor a child, when you sponsor a child in the developing world, what you're saying is may your kingdom come and bring hope where there's despair. When you go to visit the sick in the hospital, the elderly in the convalescent homes, when you go and minister to the homeless, when you help to bring food to stock good stamps of garland, when you help your neighbor who can't afford a uniform to send their child to school, when you help to invest in a transformational engagement center, a school in the heart of Badagri, a slum in the heart of Lagos, when you help to transform a place called La Violeta, Ecuador, where indigenous youth are de de denied a future, but because of your giving, they have a future. Those are all expressions of the kingdom of God. Now, on Friday, let me tell you, we lost one of the great ones. His name is Troy Freeman. And Troy is a man that had a vision. He went to prison. He went to prison. He was an addict. He came out. God got him clean. God got him sober. And he said, I'm going to use what God put in my life to help men and women in the same circumstance. So he never saw a hopeless case. He saw men and women who were trapped by their circumstances, trapped by their, their past, by their mistakes, by addictions. He was going to live his life to free men, to free men and women. Now, thank God today, Troy is a true free man. Amen? He's a true, he's a true free man. Because the God he served and the God he loved has already said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I know that there are men and women in this service right now that are a part of the free men and the free grace houses. And I want to tell you, we've been praying for all of you, been praying for Charlie as he's assumed the mantle of leadership. But I do want you to know that Troy's vision did not die with Troy. This is, this is a vision that he planted. This is a thing from God. It's going to live on. It's going to live on in all of you. And all of you need to understand this mantle didn't just pass to Charlie. It passed to each and every one of you to use the things God has taken you through and use that to benefit, to bless other people, to show them the way, to believe in people, to believe like Troy that there are no hopeless cases. This is how we bring the kingdom of God. So the future that we anticipate is breaking out among us right now because God has already established his will, his rule in all of our hearts. And because of that, God, we are the first line of defense. God's will is breaking out in you, in me, in this church, in other churches like us all around the world. And what we say to the world, our message is from the true church of God is if you like to see what's happening in the world look more like the things of God, then follow us because that's what we're all about. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's like saying, God, I want all that is good and wonderful and right about your way of doing life to break out in my world. I want to use my influence to make that happen, which leads to this next question. Are we cooperating with what God is doing? So when we pray, we need to ask ourselves, are we asking God to get in line with us or are we get in line with God? 
Are we saying, may what my will be done or may your will be done? You see, I really believe that God is trying to synchronize all of our hearts to his own heart. In other words, God is willing, but are we? A little later in the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is all about the will of God. Just because you call Jesus your Lord doesn't mean that you're family. What it means is the people who are really his family are the people who want what God wants. God's kingdom is already breaking out in the people who want what God wants. So when we pray for his kingdom to come, in a sense we're asking for our own kingdoms to be overturned. It's what Jesus meant when he said we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things are given to us as well. Nothing's more important than the kingdom of God. No goal you have, financial or otherwise. No no desire that you have for marriage or a happy life. All of those things come secondary to what is the kingdom of God. I like the way J.I. Packer said it. Here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, but to bring my will into line with his. So when you pray for God's kingdom to come, you don't sit back passively and wait for God to do something. Like Eric said a little earlier, we're a part of the answer to our own prayer. When we say your kingdom come, what we're really saying is your kingdom come, your will be done in me. In me, in my life. That's the earth we're talking about. Your life, your sphere. You're made of dirt just like this earth. You're the one that he wants to incarnate himself in. So your will be done. Are we willing to say, God, I'm clearing the docks of my agenda because I only want yours? God, my stuff is your stuff. Tell me what to do with it. My time is your time. Tell me how to spend it. Your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's what I want, God. You see, prayer is not about trying to get God to do what I want him to do. Prayer is about aligning my heart with God. So to pray your kingdom come is to express our desire to be a part of the great divine cleanup of the world. Here's something else significant about this prayer. These are not requests, they're demands. So oftentimes when we translate this or we say it, we say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. But that's not really what the Greek says. The Greek, these words are imperative, which means they're a demand, they're a command. Now a lot of people get really uncomfortable here and say, well, should we be commanding God to do anything? Well, please understand, first, Jesus is the one who taught us to pray this. And then secondly, understand the idea behind these demands is we're ready to do our part. So when I say, God, please bring your kingdom, when I say bring your kingdom, I'm saying, let's do this thing. We're saying, do it now, do it here, do it in us, God. When I went to Africa for the very first time, now 14 years ago, you know, we had a conference in Nairobi for about three days, and we learned all about the AIDS pandemic. We learned a lot about poverty. We learned about what was going on in Kenya, and then they divided us, pastors, there were a bunch of us there, divided us into four different groups, and we chose to go to a different part of the world, and I, and I decided to go to Katito. This was the southwestern corner of Kenya. It's a place that didn't even have electricity. For the first five years we were involved there, didn't have electricity anywhere in the Nicotch Valley. Very primitive. AIDS had shot off the charts in this part of the country. I'll never forget when we're driving in, The road was so terrible, you'd be on the road, then you'd have to go down the grass and come back to the road and back and forth like that. Made the trip extraordinarily long. But as we began to come into the main road, into Katito Center, I can still remember the caskets stacked up alongside the row, about five tall and as far as I could see down that road. 
The average pastor in that community was doing five to six funerals a week because people were dying of AIDS. I mean, it was just terrible. But you know, last time I was there, I came down that same road, doesn't have all the potholes anymore. You can stay on the road the whole time now. But as I drove into Catito Center, all those word workers are making furniture now. You see, because Spring Creek made a commitment to be in this community for 13 years and to invest long-term for their health, for their education, for a real transformation. And having been there when it was so primitive and having gone back after we'd seen such substantial change, I can't tell you how much it blesses my heart. I can remember the first time I went to Catito and I was there and I was with a group of farmers now, this is a valley that's often flooded, and it's followed by years of drought. They'd had two years of drought. They were desperate. We pastors came in, and they are begging us to do something, asking us for advice. What can we do? you got to be really desperate when you ask pastors how to farm. You know, I mean, because <laughs> I don't know what to do to help you in that. But they are just so desperate. They need anything. You know, I went the last time. I was in this same group of farmers. And you see, over these last 13 years, because of our investment in there, they, they learned about better farming methods. There's greenhouses all throughout the Nyakach Valley now because of Spring Creek and its influence. And these farmers were talking about they'd been through two years of drought, and they weren't asking me for help. They were saying, what are we going to do to get through this together? They're talking about leaning on each other. You see, the kingdom of God is breaking out. What God wants to happen in that community is happening now. Be that community, the kids were dying for lack of just a clean drinking source. Because Spring Creek invested over that time, there's now this huge uh, structure, infrastructure of water where we've taken water in remote places and brought it in to the main road so that people, kids aren't dying simply from drinking water that's had defecation and urination and all kinds of disease and parasites. And kids aren't dying for that anymore because the kingdom of God is breaking out. You see, I believe as a church, this is our priority. We're praying for God's kingdom to take place on earth, and we're the first example of that. We're an outpost. We're, a, we're on the beachhead. We're difference makers in this world, which means we've got to hear the Lord's prayer in a new way. And let me kind of wrap up with these simple points. Number one, we pray our Father. Jesus taught us to think of God as our Father. In the gospel, he calls he calls God his Father 189 times, 124 of those times just in the Gospel of John. In the Old Testament, people did not refer to God as Father. Now, you can find 14 references in the Old Testament. All of them are referring to God as the Father of the nation of Israel, but you will find no individual ever referencing God as their personal father. But Jesus did it. He did it all the time. There's only one time he didn't on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he's quoting scripture. But notice Jesus didn't say my father as if he were his father alone. He says our father because he's your father too. He's the father of us all, even among people who disown him. The kingdom of God is about God wanting his lost sheep found. The kingdom of God is about reconciling the family. The kingdom of God is about seeing our obligation to one another because we're children of the same father. Your family is not just your kin. Your family is not just people who look like you. Your family are people who look different, who believe different, who are from a different part of the world. So we cannot pray this prayer, our Father, and then act like the citizens of the world are not our brothers and sisters. They are. All of them are our brothers and sisters. Another thing, daily bread. 
Now, daily bread, that word daily was a very difficult word because it only occurs one time in the entire Bible, and they didn't know exactly how to translate it. There was no, they thought maybe even Jesus made up the word because they couldn't find it in any classical Greek literature. No Greek literature had this word. But you might remember back in 1947, there was this amazing discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they found these scrolls, they found ancient manuscripts, like a thousand years older than any manuscript we'd ever had before. And it just proved how amazingly accurately the Bible had been trans transferred from generation to generation, that we had really super accurate copies of the Bible. But they found these little pottery shards, and they found this word daily on that. And you know what the pottery shards were? They were grocery lists. And they were the things that you had to go to the store for every day because they were perishable items. So they didn't have refrigeration back in those days. So when you needed your Mickey Mouse popsicles and your milk, you know, you had to write that on a pottery shard. Well, this is the kind of daily provision he's talking about. And I don't pray for my daily bread, do I? I pray for our daily bread. We cannot be praying for our daily bread and then not care if that's not happening for my brothers and sisters, both in our community and around the world. The empires of this world do not care about hungry people, but God's kids do. This is why we support great organizations like Good Sam's of Garland. Good Samaritans of Garland is the first line of defense in the city of Garland. We have poured hundreds and thousands of dollars into this organization because we know not just them, but many other nonprofits in our city will go to Good Sam's and say, we need help. We need help feeding these people. We need help feeding the homeless. And we are helping to supply the one who supplies all of those ministries with food. Then we pray, forgive us our debts. Now, the word for debt is ophelitis, and ophelitis is only used six times in the entire Bible. You've heard versions of the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our trespasses, right? As we forgive those who trespass against us. That's not a good translation because ophelitis is never used to describe our sin debt. Now, I understand that's a decent application because we're all sin debtors to God. Right? I get that. But please understand, when we're praying this prayer, we're talking about actual debt, money that you owe. Now, any good financial planner you ever meet will tell you the same thing, that owing money is a form of servanthood. That when you owe anybody, whether it's your car or your visa or your mortgage payment, you know the word mortgage comes from the word death? You thought those payments were going to kill you? Well, they know that, so they put it right in the name. <laughs> we owe money, and so we owe service when we owe money. A certain part of your week you spend earning money to serve somebody else. This is what the Bible tells us in Proverbs, the rich rule over the poor, the borrower is servant or slave to the lender. So we, we set up a master-servant relationship anytime we owe money. And we use things to describe that, like being up to our ears in debt and saddled with debt and burdened with debt. Even our country talks about debt service because it's, debt is a service matter. But God is concerned about the captive, not just the prisoner who's been to jail, but the person who is a servant to what they owe. This is about forgiving. It's about knowing that we've been forgiven for so much that we forgive other people because we understand that people are more important than profits. People are more important than money. Now, the domination systems of this world, they like to prey on the financially vulnerable, and they like to take somebody who's financially vulnerable and make them destitute. It's called payday lending and title loan lending. And because we understand that as a church and we understand the hit our community has taken, our church stirred up in mass to our city and said, you've got to regulate these businesses. And we went to City Hall and we stood because we believe that the kingdom of God needs to break out in financial matters too. And because we took that stand, our city passed tough regulation and we saw more than half of those 
uh, industries, just leave our city and go someplace else. Now, they went to our neighboring cities, so we followed them there. And we said, you're not going to get away with it there either. And we taught churches how to stand up to their city council and show them this is the heart of God. We're praying for God to forgive our debt. And then finally, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The last line reminds us that we live in a world in a system that's hostile to the values of the kingdom of God. They will not relinquish their power without a fight. The domination systems of this world are under the power of the evil one. Now, the temptation we constantly face is to fight the system using the weapons of the system. We're tempted to return violence for violence, hate for hate, harsh rhetoric with more harsh rhetoric, name-calling with name-calling, and that is not the Jesus way. Jesus said those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. What he's saying is you reap what you sow. You put that stuff out there, it boomerangs back to you. We don't fight the battle that way because we have someone who fights our battles for us. Amen? So something else implicit in this request is you and I don't have what we need to take on the powers that be. We need a power greater than ourselves, And this is what the Bible says. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than one who's in the world. I don't know what you're battling today. I don't know what you're up against. But I do know this. God is for you. And I do know that there are people here who care. And if you find yourself in a situation right now and you just need somebody to pray with you, we have chaplains at the end of the service. They come down front. They'd be happy to take the time just to sit with you and to pray with you, to talk with you. So please, by all means, make yourself available of that. But here's the thing. Now that I've talked to you about what the Lord's Prayer is really about, would you dare to pray it with me now? Because that's how I want to close this time. I'm not going to look to see who prays and who doesn't pray. But if we pray this now, we pray it sincerely, knowing what it means. And this is what it says. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.